The following is a presentation from LifePoint Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. It is our hope and prayer that God will use this message to speak to you. For more information, visit LifePointPeople.com. We are uh, second part of the two-part series, Celebrate. And the question today, does hell exist? Who got my email in their mailbox? Who opened it because I cursed? You can be honest, it's got the highest open rate of any of the last five emails. I can see that. You didn't think I could, but I can. I can also see if you opened it, and so I just can't see you. So the, uh, yeah, I titled it, uh, What the Hell? Uh, what is hell? What, what is this thing that we are afraid to go to? What is this thing that uh, youth pastors and elementary teachers scare the children into so they don't have to go there and burn? For eternity, uh, I said in my email, I, it's how I got my brother converted out in the backyard. I told him, guess what I did over at Grandpa and Grandma's? I got saved. What does that mean? I'm six, he's four. It means I'm going to heaven with God and gold and mansions. Yeah, and you're going to hell. <laughs> Just tears filled his eyes. And you're going to burn with the demons there. This is, this is proselytizing 101, friends. This is how it's done. So he went in and told mom and dad they were none too happy about it. And I've been doing it that way ever since. Uh, it, it doesn't work out well. That is, however, unfortunately, the perception of hell. That is the perception from the unbelieving world, from Hollywood, from media, from, for heaven's sakes, our cartoons. Where does Wiley Coyote go when he crashes too hard into the ground? to hell, and there's spires and fire and lava and demons, and we understand it to be that. Now, we've grown up, and we're much more mature, and so we don't actually think there's demons that sit and poke you in fire and lava, but there is still this concept that it is a place that God will send bad people, right? God's going to send you there because you weren't good enough, and, uh, and he's got to satisfy his justice somehow, so he sends his children to hell. This is popular Western theology. And uh, this morning, the reason I titled my message, What the Hell, is how in the world, how in the world are we as Christians perpetuating this idea of hell? How are we continuing to stand behind it? Even though maybe we don't quite get it, or maybe we're starting to say that can't be it, how is this still the predominant view of hell? So we're going to talk about that there this morning. I really hope to come away from, uh, from this morning with you with actionable items for you to walk away with, for you to be able to take what I say here today and be able to share it and in three to five minutes teach somebody else or say, you know, I've believed this for a while too, but this is, my pastor made a great point and I believe this is what it is. You're going to see this morning, everything I say does not come from my theology, my viewpoint. Uh, it's really going to come straight from scripture and hopefully I have helped through my study this week make it as clear as possible to deliver to you because it's not an easy concept to understand. If it was, we would all understand it. So if you've been here for a little while, you know that a few months ago I spoke on hell in the Apostles' Creed, right? There was a line in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell, the third day he rose again. And I spoke on hell. So I had a couple people this week be like, you just spoke on hell. I thought we had a year off or something from the hell talk. Like, this, it's a month later, what's going on? Um, I did. As with anything with the Lord, there should be a deepening revelation. We should be able to continue to grow in knowledge and understanding of things of the Lord. One of the things I taught a few months ago on hell was that hell was not the demons and the pitchforks and fire, but that it was 
in some way an absence of the presence of God, right? And we expanded on that. I looked at some of the best minds, thinkers, and teachers throughout the Christian community today, and we see this sort of understanding that it is, it is an absence of the presence of God. But you know what I struggle with that definition? I struggled with one of the biggest questions I had was if it is the absence of the presence of God, how, when Christ was on the cross, did he become absent from himself? How, in that point, did, he, did, did the Trinity become a, uh, a bi-unity? Did it become this sort of Father, Holy Spirit, but the Son's over here? So for like three days in the history of all, of eternity, it was a, not a Trinity, but a, a, a bi-unity. And that doesn't make sense. There's theology around that and everything else in the church, and it just, I couldn't wrap my head around it. I didn't like it. I wasn't settled with it, but I... I knew it had to be something more. So what I accustomed this deeper understanding and what I want to share with you today is me not letting go of it. You see, since I preached on that, I haven't let go of it. And then a good friend of mine came and gave me an article about a month back, and I finally got around to reading it. And as I read it, I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, but I could just sense the Holy Spirit. I, could, I couldn't get up. I could not get up. I kept reading and reading. I even fell to my knees. And it was like, as I'm reading, I could feel his presence. And I had a meeting I had to be at, but I couldn't leave. I could not leave because what I was experiencing reading was truth. And it was like um, everything was coming together. So now that it's hot, and today's supposed to be just a teensy bit warm, um, my wife and I no longer get to go outside and enjoy the beauty of the cul-de-sac and seeing the kids play. And so now we just send them off to their dungeon rooms. And we have engaged in something that is incredibly intellectual, um, physically draining, unbelievably difficult, torturous at times, called a 2,000-piece puzzle. And if you've ever done one of these things, it's, it may be what hell actually is, is like a 2,000-piece puzzle, one after another. And then when you have a 2,000-piece puzzle and you have a two-year-old in your house, that is hell, because it's never-ending, them going up and touching, and then messing up all of your lines. Like, those are the blues! Do not mix the blues with the origin my house right now. So I'm looking at it for a long time. I've got all the oranges trying to build this house, this beautiful coastline, right? Don't you know if you ever do a puzzle and you have the trees, the green trees get saved for last because they're hell. The, the blue water and blue sky, I mean, it's all blue. You're just looking at two puzzle pieces going, I will try every single one. It's hell. And so I'm sitting there staring at these pieces for 30 minutes, cannot get anything to connect, don't see any of the pictures, stand up, walk away from it, come back, sit down, and you know if you do puzzles, all of a sudden I see a connection and I have 15 pieces done in 60 seconds. Like just bam, bam, bam. For me, this understanding of hell was like that. This understanding of hell took puzzle pieces of theology, of God, of Christ, of the Trinity, of mankind, of sin, and it was puzzle pieces that were laying out there in my mind. And it was like all of a sudden they all just came together. And I want to do that for you in the next 30 minutes, be able to allow this concept to come together. And I really think, by God's grace, we're going to be able to do that. Amen? Amen. If you have a Bible, open up to Luke 16. Luke chapter 16, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book in the Gospels. Chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. It's a famous parable. Remember, a parable is a story meant to teach a lesson. Last week, we read the parable of the prodigal son. The younger son takes half his father's estate, leaves, squanders it on wine, booze, and women, and uh, rock and roll, and then comes back home and is accepted by his father. The older brother is none 
too happy about it. This week we're going to open up and talk about Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus and the rich man. And we're going to talk and study and see what this story teaches us about hell. Verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and he was buried. And in hell, this is Jesus, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. With La- uh, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from where you are to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. It's a pretty incredible parable. And even as he told it, people were confused. And we do what we immediately do, which we say, so hell then is a place where fire just sits and licks at my feet and my body and I just am in constant torment and he uses the image of a chasm and so we build up in our minds a cave with, with just incredible uh, pain all around, lit only by the lava and the fire that torments us. And the demons are there and Satan's there and this must be what hell is and God casts us away to this place. God sends us there because of what we have done wrong on this earth, because we did not appease him in some way, right? This is the church's understanding. This is not even the world's understanding. This has been the church's understanding. And then the world has heard it and seen it, and every movie, song, TV show, cartoon has adapted this idea, this understanding of hell. In old theology, hell signified separation from God's love even from his presence. And this idea, however, is objected by Psalm 89, 30 through 33. Now when I spoke on hell in the Apostles' Creed, this is where I came to, is this understanding that hell is somehow the absence of God, right? It is somehow the separation from him, which we do not fully understand now, that even though we're on this earth and we don't, some don't believe in him, we are not separated from him. But when I talk about a deeper understanding, when I talk about the puzzle pieces fitting into place, this is what I'm talking about this morning, is hell is a form of an absence from him, but you're going to see here that we are never truly separated from him. 
even in hell. And I want to show you that this morning. And for some of you, if you've been in the church for a while, that statement goes contrary to what you've heard or what you've believed or what you've been taught. But I want to show this morning how, it, whether in heaven or hell, whether on earth, alive, or in death, you cannot be separated from the love of God. I'm going to say that again. Heaven or hell, alive on earth or in death, you cannot be separated from the love of God. I'm going to show you this this morning. Psalm 89, 30 through 33 says, If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my ordinances, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with scourges. Scourges but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. So if hell then is this darkness, which it's often portrayed as an outer darkness and that God's graces can't reach it, we know again through scripture that God's grace reaches to the ends of the earth, that there is neither height nor depth, right? That whole thing, principalities or pain or darkness or anything that can separate me from the love of God. So if God's love is light and it penetrates the darkness and there is nowhere that I can go to hide from it, then it's not that darkness, uh, that hell is darkness to God because God cannot have darkness, but that hell is darkness to the sinner, to you and I. It's a darkness. Now, pay attention here because this gets a little tricky and I want to make sure I explain it well. The light of God indeed permeates hell as well as heaven. The light of God will permeate hell as well as heaven because there is nowhere I can go in heaven or earth to escape his light. Well, wait a minute. If God casts away the sinner into hell, if on judgment day God looks in his almighty book of life and your name isn't there and he picks your sorry soul up, and tosses you in, then wouldn't his light still be there, according to scripture? The psalmist also says, even in the darkness, it is not dark to thee. Night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. It's Psalm 139, 12. Again, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Sheol is not hell, but the point is God persists in his light. And there is no place, no foreboding place, no terror, no place of terror that God's light does not exist. Fire in the Bible symbolizes not the absence of God, but the presence of God. Did you know that? Fire in the Bible symbolizes the presence of God. He's depicted as a consuming fire, a devouring fire. Deuteronomy 4, uh, chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 5, Psalm 21, Psalm 29, Psalm 50, Isaiah 29, Isaiah 30, Nehemiah 9, Hebrews 12, 29. Over and over and over, God is seen as a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29. For our God is a consuming fire, the very fire which purifies gold and consumes wood. You see, his fire does not change. His fire does not purify gold because it's a fire of love, and it does not destroy and consume wood because it's a fire of wrath. It's just fire. It is what it is. It is love. What changes is the object being consumed. Okay? Now, track with me here. All of us 
are under the same fire of love. Some of us will shine and be purified. Others will be hardened like clay and produce a black smoke and see it as an irritant and not love. The difference is conditioned by the free choice of man. Listen to this. Which God respects absolutely. We love to complain. We love to wonder. We love to debate with one another. You know, predestination, elect, not elect, and all of this stuff. Well, if God predestined, if God's outside of time, then I don't really have any free will. And if my destiny's already written out for me, how is that fair to some people? And what about the people who never hear about God? And what about babies? And what about, what about, and we come up with all of these stuff to distract ourselves from the fact is God absolutely respects our ability to choose freely. And he will not interfere with that. He will not interfere. God's judgment, listen, God's judgment of heaven and hell is the revelation of the reality which you are in. Does that statement make sense? God's judgment, heaven and hell are there, and their purpose being there is to reveal the reality you are already living in. It's not going to all of a sudden be a list of things you did right or wrong, or hey, you accepted Jesus, you gave this much money, you journaled, you prayed, you read the Bible, you're in. It is simply going to reveal the reality you're already in. That's the purpose of it. So, how did we come to our modern understanding of hell? How in the West, and now going global around the world, this understanding of hell, preachers who, who preach venom and fire from the stage. Streetwalkers who tell people, unbelievers, you will burn in hell if you do not turn. A church that claims to be Christian, which completely humiliates the Christian faith and completely uh, destroys it with her heresy. And they claim to be speaking the word of God and people don't know how to refute them because they don't exact, they know they're wrong, they know there's something off, they just don't know where. So for too many centuries, hell is depicted as a place of torture where God wreaks vengeance on those whom he consigned to damnation. Isn't that a scary sentence? Like, I got to say damn and hell today. And there's not going to be any bleeps, hopefully, on the, on the audio edit. God assigns us to damnation. Cyprian is a the, uh, theologian, and his view of hell came to prevail over origins, also a theologian, who depicted hell in medicinal terms. According to Cyprian, the ever-burning Gehenna, hell, will burn up the condemned with living flames, nor will there be a respite or a rest. Weeping will be useless and prayer will be ineffectual. <laughs> I added the evil laugh at the end. That's actually not in quotes, air quotes. That's the best evil laugh I had to. I practiced all week in my office. Just <laughs> in the Middle Ages, it was commonly held that the bliss of the redeemed would be enhanced by the contemplation of the torments of the damned. This should make us be like, what? Let me put that in English. You and I will be dancing and happy when we think about sinners burning in hell. That, this is the church. This is the thought. This is how they preached. This is how we converted people. This is how we taught. 
Don't worry, you who are suffering now at the hands of your tormentors, for one day they will burn in the pits of hell, and great loud rejoicing would have risen up. In fact, this idea gained such ascendancy in Protestantism that we can see it in the hymn by Isaac Watts. And I've tried to get Stacy to sing this hymn. He just won't. He says no. What bliss will fill the ransomed souls when thy in glory dwell. Gosh, that's beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> to see the sinner as he rolls in quenchless flames of hell. This is a hymn, people. Open your hymns to number 181. We're going to condemn the sinners to hell, and we're going to rejoice in it. <laughs> My goodness. No wonder the church is the tell of culture. No wonder the church is seen as irrelevant, as judgmental, as confused. Because for heaven's sake, if that's what we're preaching from a stage, then that is confused. And that is ridiculous. Because you never heard that preached from the Lord. You never heard that. You never saw him treat sinners like that. No, in fact, he preferred to hang out with the sinners. He preferred it. They were honest. They were real. He could be real with them. He loved them because he knew what lied ahead of them if they didn't choose love in their heart over the hate that we gravitate towards. So then what is hell? The simplest definition would be hell is the incapacity or the inability to love even in the presence of almighty love, of ultimate love. It is the inability to love even in the presence of almighty love. St. Peter, the the Damascene, writes, I think that's how you say it, we all receive God's blessings equally, but some of us receiving God's fire, that is his word, become soft like beeswax, while others like clay become hard as stone. And if we do not want him, he does not force any of us. But like the sun, he sends his rays and illuminates the whole world. And he who wants to see him sees him, whereas the one who does not want to see him is not forced to have it. God created the sun and the eye. Man is free to receive the sun's light or not. The same is true here. God sends the light of knowledge like rays to all, but he also gave us faith like an eye. The one who wants to receive knowledge through faith keeps it by his works, and so God gives him more willingness, more knowledge, more power. So let's tie in this with the story of Lazarus and the rich man. God does not force himself on anybody. He does not force his love on anybody. How many dads do we have in here again? Dad, have you ever tried to force your love on your kids? Have you ever tried to like grab them and be like, you will love me? And the kid's like, stop it. Like, we've got these new girls, right, that we're getting ready to adopt. And uh, the older one, her and I, we're, we're working on a relationship. And I'll pick her up and be like, I love you. And she goes, uh. And I'm like, love me back. She goes, no. And I'm like, all right. 
And we laugh about it and I throw her around and stuff. <laughs> you cannot force your love on anybody. And it's been interesting because what I realize is even though I really do love her and God has given me an incredible love for her as if she's my own child, that no matter how much I love her, she'll have to make the choice one day as to whether or not she'll love me. So we see Lazarus and he's sitting there with Abraham as Jesus is telling the story to get us to understand heaven and hell. The story isn't about the fire or the agony or the torment. The story is about where is Lazarus's heart and where is the rich man's heart. You see, even in hell, the rich man looks up, feeling the fire, feeling the torment, the agony, and I'll explain in a minute here what that is. And he has the audacity to tell Abraham, to tell the beggar, to dip his finger in water and touch it to his tongue. Did you ever think about that? Like it feels like all of a sudden we're seeing humility from the rich man. Like he's sitting there in pain and he's like, oh, if only I could have the water, if Lazarus, he has the audacity. Like tell that beggar to come, come and give me water. Abraham says, no, we can't. There's a divide between us. We can't cross it and you can't cross over. Fine, fine, fine. Tell the beggar to go back to earth then and to tell my five brothers so they have a more fair shot at heaven than I did. This is what he's saying. He's, he's in hell. He, he's being completely upheld by the love of God. And he has no humility. He never asks Abraham for forgiveness or God for forgiveness. He never says, what must I do to be with you? Forgive me. I repent. Instead, he still demands to be served and still feels as if he didn't get a fair shake at life. Your brothers have Moses and the prophets like you did. That wasn't enough. If they see a dead man rise and come back to life, that, that'll prove it. And Abraham says, no, not even that will do it. So, we see this picture that he sees heaven. He's fully upheld by a God who cannot stop loving him. We know God is a fire. We know God is an all-consuming fire. And he doesn't ever choose repentance. He doesn't ever choose humility. Instead, he continues to be the same man he's always been, making excuses, angry, prideful. So we now must confront the question, who goes to hell? Who goes to hell? Saint Simeon, the new theologian says, it's not what a man does which counts in eternal life or a woman does, but what he or she is. Whether they are like Jesus Christ our Lord or whether they are different and unlike him. So St. Simeon says this, in the future life, the Christian is not examined if he has renounced the whole world for Christ's love, or he has not, uh, yeah, examined, or if he has distributed his riches to the poor, or if he has fasted and kept vigil or prayed, or if he has wept and lamented for his sins, or if he has done any other good in this life, but he is examined attentively if he has any similarity with Christ. 
as a son does with the father. Now, that's a pretty condemning statement. Wait a minute. It, it's not what I do, it's what I am. But I renounced my sins. I've tithed at the church. I volunteered at the church. I, I've been vigil. I've prayed. I've, I, I've gone before the Lord. I've done all these things. Of course, of course I must look like Christ, right? Well, do you? Right? This is, such, this is meant for us to introspectively look at ourselves. Do I? Was there any motive other than the glory of God when I was doing those things? I used to have this little card in, in high school given to me by a youth pastor. It said, get out of hell free. And it looked like a Monopoly card. And I, I literally, that's why you'll hear me say, get out of hell free card. My mind goes back to that card and I keep it in my wallet like, like, if I die with this, with this on me, this is what I'm going to present to Jesus. I'm just going to, like, there'll be a line of the sinners, and I'm just going to walk by it and be like, bam. Just walk on in, big old Slurpee in my hand. Just, I've had that in my back pocket for a while. But Jesus said, there will be many on that day who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not love you? And I'll say, depart from me you who practice iniquity. It's not about what you do, it's about who you are, whose you are, and do you look like the Father? Scripture speaks of the damnation and the condemnation of those who dwell in unbelief. Those who steadfastly reject the grace of God. Hell reminds us that we are living in a moral universe. Listen to that. It reminds us we're living in a moral universe. It is a striking monument to human freedom, but it cannot be divorced from God's sovereignty and justice. If you ever think hell is God being mean or God is a cruel judge, you've got to, we're trying to understand what it actually is. You see, God is not going to send anyone to hell. Listen. What if I just stop there and the sound bite cuts out and they're like, I knew it, he's a heretic. We will go there ourselves. We will walk there, float there, fly there, crawl there ourselves. Because hell and heaven are a revelation of what we already were. All it does is reveal the hearts of men and women. And we will be incapable of loving the ultimate love. We will be incapable of returning that love just as the rich man was in his situation. A.W. Tozer warns against dismissing the idea of hell altogether because of the belief that God is love. He says, the vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. We must take seriously the threat of rejection by God as contained, for example, in Hebrews 2.3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now this is fascinating because this, this term rejection feels like God is actively doing something feels like God is punishing. But we learned last week, 
when we, talk, when we ask the question, is God really good, is will God punish without the ability to bring about correction? No. God will only punish if punishment can bring about correction. So if hell is eternal damnation and cannot bring about correction, then is, is God punishing us? Something interesting to think about. I'll answer it here. All sins are forgiven except the sin against the Holy Spirit, Mark 3, 28 through 30, which means outright rejection of the gospel. It's the refusal to believe that prevents mortals from entering his rest. Numbers in Hebrews talks about that. It is the reprobate Christians who are to be judged the most severely, Hebrews 6. <laughs> That's you and me. Reprobate Christians. Those who said, I knew God, they accepted the Lord, and then they decided to go do their own thing anyway because they got tired of him. The Bible says those will be judged most severely. It's the sons of the kingdom who are thrown into outer darkness. Even the sons who have been set over the household will suffer condemnation. Tyre and Sidon, notorious pagan cities, will be judged less severely than some Jewish cities. Luke 10, 13 through 14 says that. What's the point here? What's the Father saying? Hell is outside the bliss and rapture of the kingdom, but not outside the rule of the kingdom. It is outside the sphere, it is not outside the sphere of God's sovereign love for you. So, I want to bring this together now. Hell is not a place God sends you to be punished. Hell is you, for the first time, being fully upheld by love, completely by the Father. And because he is an all-consuming fire, it reveals what is already in you. And at that point, will you have the ability to return love with love or love with hate? That will determine. That will determine. All it will do is reveal what's already there. And we on our own will walk away from Almighty God. We will choose to not be part of the banquet. We will choose to not repent and revel in his joy and his kingdom and in the life he's given us. We'll walk away. And so the Catholic theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, which by the way, congratulations to whoever named that guy, right? Like Nathan just seems so plain compared to von Balthasar. In the light of living faith, I can never believe fundamentally in anyone's damnation but my own. Listen to that. As regards my neighbor, the light of the resurrection can never be so obscure for me as to allow or compel me to cease hoping for him. What's he saying? He's saying the one person that I can be sure is going to hell is me. That's it. I will not judge you. I will not judge those outside this place. I will not judge those engaging in activities that God calls evil. Instead, I will have a continual hope and I will pray and intercede on their behalf that the Lord will save them from a darkness of mind, from an, un, from an ignorant spirit. And I will pray that his light, which is given to all equally, will be seen and will penetrate the clouds that blind them. 
So who is the one person I can be sure is going to hell? Me. So who do I need to be concerned about? Whose actions are righteous and pure? Whose heart is right? Me. Friends, this changes the whole spectrum of the church. Do you get what I'm saying here? If all 300 or so of us were concerned more with a clear understanding that I am damned to hell, and it is by the grace of Jesus Christ alone that I have any hope to return the Father's love with love, that is my saving grace. And may I look at all others around me, Christian, sinner, opposite faith, my enemies, and may I not judge them or condemn them to hell, but may I pray and intercede on their behalf that they will not have to understand eternity of darkness. Not darkness because there will be an absence of light, but a darkness of mind because they will have returned love with hate. That is hell. There's another hymn that I like more than the previous one by Isaac Watts. Paul wrote it in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, when he said, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? All of scripture is about Jesus. Every image, every, every story, every prophecy, every account of history, every covenant, every law. It's all about him. So as we close, we have to ask ourselves this question, what does hell tell me about Jesus? Right? If it's all about him, then what does hell tell me about Jesus? How does it show me who he is? How does it show me his characteristics? He's constantly teaching the disciples how the scriptures are about him. And what it shows me is this, no person is rejected or excluded from God's love. Nobody, no matter what you've done or who you are, but exclusion from salvation in the kingdom of God is another matter. Not all are adopted into the family of God and given the title of sons and daughters, but even those who are refused admission to the great banquet in heaven are still loved by God and are still called by God. So I want to close, and I told you that uh, this began by reading an article called The River of Fire by Alexander Kosmorov. And in it, he closes like this, and I wanna read it, and I'll paraphrase some of it, but it's so perfect that if we could walk away from this room, Christians, with an understanding of hell that was not condemnation, that was not judgment, that was not a fiery pit, we might be able to walk away from here with a deeper love and appreciation for the Lord's Supper and for our own salvation. Alexander says this, if anyone is perplexed and does not understand how it is possible for God's love to render anyone pitifully wretched and miserable and even burning as it were in flames, let him consider the elder brother of the prodigal son. Can you remember the story from last week? Was he not in his father's estate? Did not everything in it belong to him? Did he not have his father's love? Did his father not come himself to beseech him to come and take part of the joyous banquet? What rendered him miserable and burned him with inner bitterness and hate? Who refused him anything? 
Why was he not joyous at his brother's return? Why did he not love either toward his father or toward his brother? Was it not because of the wickedness in his inner being? Did he not remain in hell because of that? What was this hell? What was this hell? Was it any separate place? Did he go to the dungeon of his father's estate? Was he cast off the property into a life of servanthood? Were there any instruments of torture? Did he continue to live in his father's house? What separated him from all the joyous people in the house if it wasn't his own hate and his own bitterness already in his heart? Did his father, listen to this part, did his father or even his brother ever stop loving him? Was it not precisely this very love which hardened his heart even more? Dad, how dare you throw a party and kill the fatted calf? So I pointed this out third service, but I forgot to this service. He says to his father, how dare you throw a party for your son who spent half your wealth on harlots and booze and partying? And you kill the fatted calf for him? He says, your son. He doesn't say my brother. Right? You know the father's response to him? Your brother was lost and now he's found. Your brother was dead, but now he's alive. God is reminding him, he is not just my son, he's your brother. And you are to love him as such, just as I love him, just as I love you. But the older brother can't. He can't love that way. Why? Because God hasn't let him? Because he's incapable? Because God condemned him? No, because he has allowed hate and bitterness to reign in his heart. Well, isn't he the brother who never left? Isn't he the one who listened to all of his father's things, read all of his father's scriptures, went to church every Sunday? You seeing what I'm doing here? Isn't he that brother, the good Christian brother? He is. But he didn't have love in his heart. He was full of hate. He was full of bitterness. Was it not the very joy of the situation that made him sad? Was it not hatred burning in his heart for his father and his brother and for the love of his father toward his brother and the love of his brother toward his father? Friends, this is hell. That's hell. This is what hell is. And just as you can have heaven while here on earth, when you accept Christ into your heart and he transforms you, heaven starts here. It's not something you wait for. Heaven starts right here, right now on earth. And in the same way, we can have hell right here, right now on this earth. We do. We already see it. What do we seek to fill that void? We seek power, fame, money, sex, love, anything the world has to offer. We are trying to fill it. And every time we get close to achieving it, it just is never what we hope it would be. And so we experience that hell. We experience wanting more, not having a genuine joy and love in our heart. And we're stuck in this continual cycle until one day, and this is where... Um, St. Gregory of Nyssa is going to say, we are fully upheld by God. To be surrounded by love and have hate in one's heart is hell. Then this is the eternal condition of the damned. <laughs> they are dearly loved. They are invited to the joyous banquet, 
They are living in God's kingdom in the new earth and the new heaven. No one expels them. Even if they wanted to go away, they cannot flee from God's new creation. They cannot hide from his tender, loving omnipresence. Their only alternative would be, perhaps, as the older brother, to go away from the brothers and search for a bitter isolation, but they can never depart from God and his love. You see, hell is not so much the presence or absence of God. Hell is the full, unbelievable, omnipresence upholding of God of your life. Tell me you've ever heard that about hell. Where he is fully, you're experiencing his love fully. St. Gregory of Nicaea says this, and let me explain what that means, and then we'll call the ushers forward. In the present life, the things we have relations with are numerous. For instance, we have a relationship with time. We have a relationship with air. We have a relationship with locality, food and drink, clothing, sunlight, lamplight. All of these things are necessities of life, but they are not necessities of God. He doesn't need them. So, in the blessed state, when we die, we hope for, is everything we hope for is in need of none of these things. So the divine being will become all of these things to us. Isn't that crazy? God will become all of those necessities for us. The Bible tells us that in the new heavens and new earth there will be neither sun nor moon. God's light will shine. God's light will fill the earth. He will distribute himself proportionately to every need of, the, of all that exists. It is plain too from the Holy Scriptures that God becomes to those who deserve it the locality, the time, the home, the clothing, the food, the drink, the light, the riches in the kingdom, everything that can be thought of a name that goes to make our life happy. This is God. This is the eternal life. God will be everything to his creatures. Not only to the good, but also to the wicked. Not only to those who love him, but likewise to those who hate him. Who, but, who, but how will those who hate him endure to have everything from the hands of whom they detest? How will those who hate him endure to have everything given to you from someone you hate? That is hell. Ushers, come forward. We get the opportunity right now to receive communion. And if you have a relationship with God, take the cup and the bread. They're stacked on top of each other. And then hang on to them. We'll partake together. And the ushers can begin to pass it out. St. Gregory of Nicaea says, Oh, or of Nisa says, Oh, what an eternal torment is this. What an eternal fire. What a gnashing of teeth. Do you get it now? Do you get that this isn't about an all-loving God who's going to banish his bad children to everlasting torment and pain in a lake of fire? But that the river of fire, the lake, is him? He is the all-consuming fire? that there will be some of us who will joyfully reign because we come in humility to the Father in recognition of who He is and there will be others who hate and detest who He is and they will walk away because their bitterness cannot stand to be in His presence but no matter how far they walk no matter the depth nor the height His love will follow them because they're His kids
depart from me, ye cursed, into the everlasting inner fire of heat, hatred, saith the Lord. Because I was thirsty for your love and you did not give it to me. I was hungry for your blessedness and you did not offer it to me. I was imprisoned in my human nature and you did not visit me in my church. You are free to go where your wicked desire wishes away from me to the torturing hatred of your hearts, which is foreign to my loving heart, which knows no hatred for anyone. You know, I don't read that as depart from me. Get out of my sight. I read that as a daddy whose kid has been yelling and saying, I hate you. I want nothing to do with you. I can't stand you. I cannot stand this humility you're calling me to. I can't stand it. And through Terry Eyes, dad says, go then. You go. But wherever you go in the darkness of your hating hearts, follow you like a river of fire because no matter what your heart has chosen you are and you will continually to and you will continue to be my children what if the world understood god like this Lord of those in this room as your as your light shines down as your fire consumes this place Holy Spirit you knock on the hearts of those who are here you do it Lord you do that they would come and they would say Abba Father forgive me humble me of sin in 
so when you were on that cross, it wasn't a bi-unity. Forgive me for preaching that you turned your back on the sun because it's actually the opposite. You see, what the sun felt in that moment on the cross was for the first time in all of eternity, he felt the full love and consuming fire of the Father. But instead of returning that love with love, all he had was hate to give back to the Father. Do you see that? That was hell. He couldn't love the Father. He was never separated from the Father. The Trinity was always fully intact, but he took upon himself the hate and sin of the world. And so all he could see through his eyes towards the Father was hate. And he wept and he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, redeem this time this morning. Redeem these minutes to your sons and daughters who have heard these words. And Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Move on hearts. Open eyes. Bring forgiveness where it is needed. Soften bitter hearts. Soften bitter hearts. 